0: His book, Character Forged from Conflict, author Gary Preston wrote these words. He wrote back, long time ago, back, back when the telegraph was the fastest means of long distance communication. Can you even imagine that? A few of us were talking the other day about push button and, and dial rotary phones. I don't even think my grandkids would know what a rotary phone was if I asked them. And yet, back when the telegraph was the fastest means of long-distance communication, there was a story about a young man who applied for a job as a Morse code operator. And answering an ad in the newspaper, he went to the address that was listed. And when he arrived there, he entered a large, noisy office. And in the background, a telegraph kind of clicked away. And a sign on the receptionist counter instructed all the job applicants to fill out a form and wait until they were summoned to enter the inner office. So a young man completed his form, and he sat down with the seven other waiting applicants. And After a few minutes, this young man stood up, crossed the room to the door of the inner office, opened it up, and walked right in, unannounced, uninvited. Naturally, the other applicants there perked up, wondering what in the world was going on. Why had this man been so bold to get up and do that? Well, within a few minutes, the young man emerged from the inner office, escorted by the actual interviewer, who thanked the other applicants for coming, but the job had been filled by the young man who had walked into the office. So the other applicants began to grumble to each other. So finally, one spoke up and said, Wait a minute, I don't understand something. He was the last one to come in, and we never got a chance to even be interviewed. Yet he got the job. Is that fair? The employer responded, I'm sorry, but the entire time that you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. (laughs) None of you heard it. None of you understood it. This young man did. The job's his. Now, without beating around the theological bush this morning, I want to begin by asking a very serious question. Are our ears tuned into the truth that God is repeatedly tapping out to us through his spirit and through his word? Every time you and I sit in one of these services or every time I preach one of these services, the spirit is tapping out a message to me, to you. And it's not in Morse code. Every time we open his word, he's sending out a message that could have a transforming effect on us. That is, of course, if we're really listening to it. So the question is, are we hearing it? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4 as we continue on in this little passage in this series which I've entitled Taking Your Faith Seriously. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 uh, through 11, we'll read the context again. The end of all things is near, Peter writes. Therefore, be of sound judgment for the, and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I mentioned last time, here in a concentrated presentation is an urgent call, a wake-up call to every true follower of Jesus. Peter, in a very concise and clear manner here, alerts us, all of us, to a truth that is tremendously relevant to the church today, that serious times call for a serious faith. And the question that I challenged all of us to consider at the beginning of this is, are we taking our Christianity seriously enough it's a very practical passage. Peter calls the church to some very observable actions. Last time, I touched on two. Let's review them briefly. The first thing Peter says is, you need to think clearly. If you are taking your faith seriously, you're going to think clearly and manifest this bold perspective in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Instead of falling into the trap that the rest of the world is falling into, Becoming dull, distracted, and indifferent to the reality that Christ's return is drawing near, we will not be caught catnapping when it actually happens. There's this strong sense of urgency in Peter's words here. Listen to the way that Paul addressed this same issue in Romans 13. We looked at that last time, but I want to read it to you out of the message today. But make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of your day-to-day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off oblivious to God. That says it, doesn't it? Does that strike a chord with anyone but me? I'm looking at your faces this morning, and you're looking at mine. I know some of you are exhausted. You may be struggling with the thought that way too much of your activity in your daily life really doesn't amount to much on the eternal scale. Friends, if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. I get pulled into that same kind of stuff. But somewhere along the line, in obedience to Christ, in obedience to Christ's words, I have to say, I won't do it anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. I won't get sidetracked by the enemy. I've got to make a change. I need to wake up. Romans 13, 12 continues this way. The night is almost over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God's doing. In other words, we got to stop sleepwalking through life like the rest of the world does, and wake up to the reality that every day that we live is one step closer to the day when we will face Christ. Is that true? That ought to propel me to get a little more serious about eternal things in my life and less bound by the temporal things, right? In his book, One Month to Live, Kerry Shook, author and pastor, says this. He says, be brutally honest with yourself. Your time on earth is limited. Shouldn't you start making the most of it? And then he asked this question, and this is interesting because we've seen this played out here recently. If you knew you had one month to live, you would look at everything from a different perspective. Many of the things you do now that seem so important would immediately become meaningless to you. You would have total clarity about what matters most and you wouldn't hesitate to be spontaneous and risk your heart. You wouldn't wait until tomorrow to do what you need to do today. The way you lived that month would be the way that you wished you had lived your entire life. If you knew you had one month to live, your life would be radically transformed, he says. But why do we wait until we're diagnosed with cancer or we lose a loved one to accept this knowledge and allow it to free us finally? Why do we wait? Don't we want all that life has to offer, he asks don't we want to fulfill the purpose for which we were created? Wouldn't life be a lot more satisfying if we lived that way? So I want to make an application here to this. As quickly as possible, now, without overthinking it, without thinking too hard or too long, I want you to take your bulletin. And on the back of that bulletin, on that, in the free space there, I want you to make a list of three things you'd change about your life if you knew you only had one month left to live. Really quickly, don't don't think too hard. Three things. So I don't think you have to think too hard about it, really. And then beyond that, I want you to choose one, circle one, to begin changing today. Maybe even right now. I don't want to get to the end of my life, and I'm sure you don't either, and find that we have just lived the length of it. As someone says, I want to have lived the height and the breadth and the depth of it as well. And I want to have lived it all for Jesus. Peter says, serious times call for a serious faith. And if you take your faith seriously, you'll think clearly and manifest that kind of a perspective. In Romans 13, 11, out of the ESV, it says, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So, listen to Paul. Listen to Peter. Think clearly. What the church needs to maintain is a bold perspective, God's perspective, and right along with that, Peter calls us, secondly, to live prayerfully. To manifest a balanced perspective, he says, the end of all things is near. So, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Another review, we went over this last week, but Peter simply says that we need to keep a balanced, sound, and uncluttered mind. Stay cool-headed, stay clear-headed for the purpose of prayer. Take your Christian life seriously. Live joyfully, but don't let the party distract you from the purpose, right? We talked about that last time. Watch and pray. He's saying that sort of attitude indicates that we have an appetite for God. Do you have an appetite for God? Because when we take our faith seriously, we will have a bold, balanced perspective as followers of Christ. But here, now, we're going to look at two more. Here's the third trait that Peter talks about we're going to not only think carefully. Not only live prayerfully, but thirdly, we're going to love each other fervently. Love each other fervently. We'll manifest a burning priority in our life. In verse 8, above all, Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Note the terms that he uses, above all. Above all. This command calls us to take a deeper, more detailed, biblical look at what real love is. The NIV translates it like this, Above all, love each other deeply, of supreme importance. In light of the fact that Christ's return is so near, if we take our Christianity seriously, we will love each other fervently to the point of strenuousness. That's what it means There, When it says fervently, the word keep fervent or love each other deeply, it means to the point of strenuousness, means to be fully extended, straining, like you're running a race and you're hitting the finish line and you're really stretching out to hit that ribbon. Someone described it this way. It's love at full stretch. Love at full stretch. If you've been around here a while, you've heard me describe the experience of being spiritually reborn or being born from above or born again, as it says in John chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 7. As being seized by the power of a great affection, arrested by God's great love for us. Well, now that we have been seized by the power of a great affection, Peter describes our responsibility now toward each other as being stretched with the power of a great affection. Stretch out. You know what that means, don't you? It means what Jesus meant. It means denying yourself and dying to self and taking up the cross and following Christ. Christ. That's love at full stretch. And again, Peter has already given us a sneak preview of that concept. If you turn back in 1 Peter to chapter 1 and verse 22, beginning in verse 22, we read, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. Because you've been seized by the power of a great affection, you need to be stretched out with the power of a great affection. It's an act of obedience, Peter says. We are to extend ourselves to reach each other in love instead of living self-centered lives, we're commanded to, to give ourselves to other people. And why love at full stretch? Because you and I both know that our love will be stretched to the limit by the demands that are made on it. Is that right? Because you and I know what a stretch it will be to love some people. I've often talked about the fact that every family, every group, every church has at least one person who requires extra grace from us, right? Call them EGRs, extra grace required. You've heard me say that before. And if you look around the room and you can't figure out who that EGR person is, (laughs) it's probably you. And I, Howard Marshall, gives us an apt hypothetical example of that in his commentary. He says, there in your local church is Anne, who doesn't know much about hygiene, and is frankly a little bit smelly. Bill wears you out with incessant talking. There's nobody like that in this church. (laughs) Kathy is unspiritual. Don doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Gene never knows how to act with courtesy and discretion. Hillary often grumbles. Irene has a different set of interests and values. And so on and on it goes. None of them is very easy to love at full stretch. There is also, of course, myself, he writes, and I figure in other people's lists of difficult people for similar reasons. And yet love is the answer to the problem. We find a whole host of offenses real and imagined in other people. And only love will overcome them and regard them as of no account. Why? As Peter says, because love covers a multitude of sins. Philo of Alexandria once said, and you guys thought this was a Facebook meme, but Philo of Alexandria said this, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. It's good to recognize other people's struggles, don't you think? It helps us to cut people a little slack, to understand why people act the way they do. That doesn't mean, however, that we should condone sin, condone bad behavior or bad action. And that's the danger in today's culture. There is an immense difference between sincere compassion for people and sinful compromise with people. Too much of a good thing, said Mae West, is wonderful. But as one man has rightly said, that's not true. If the good thing is tolerance. Tolerance in this culture's way. When Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, Peter does not mean tolerance as defined by today's culture. He's not suggesting that sins be overlooked or ignored. Real love, full-stretch love, readily forgives, but it still holds people accountable. James, the Lord's brother, offers a corrective here. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, James writes, My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting that he uses the same phrase in the context of holding someone accountable? Now, on the other hand, real love, full-stretch love, does not broadcast, it does not publicize, it does not stir up another's sins, but forgives them as God forgives ours. Amen? It's like this, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19:11 A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verses 4 and 5. You've heard this before. Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrongs. Ephesians 4.32, though, is the real kicker. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So it begs the question, are you at full stretch? Are you loving at full stretch, at least attempting to? Am I? Because I must say at this point it isn't going to happen if you're not part of a church community. You can't do this if you're not part of a church community. Sidebar soapbox. If you are of the opinion that being a contributing member of a local church body is an option for you as a Christian you are biblically misinformed And by member, I mean someone who commits himself or herself to uphold support and be regularly involved in a local body of believers as part of the community of Christ. I'm not talking about merely being listed on some church database or being voted in to a club. I'm talking about being part of a family where you are regularly loving others and being loved by others, serving others and being served by others, celebrating others and being celebrated by others. Again, it's a good thing to remind ourselves of the context. Go back and reread 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, It should be still on the screen. Peter here verse 22 since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the hearts. Peter's not addressing how we relate to those outside the Christian community in chapter one or in chapter four. He's referring to relationships that we have within the local church. But, writes Eric Davis in a recent blog that I just read this week, he says, churchless Christians, flockless sheep, bodiless body parts. Sadly, it's become the norm within American Christianity. Incredibly. It's a regular thing amid evangelicalism. Embarrassingly, it's widely accepted among many professing Christians that I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church. Well, we're not talking about just going to church on Sunday morning, are we? He writes, first century Christians would not have had a category for such a thing. It would have been one of the more bizarre phenomena imaginable. The love we extend towards one another says something powerful about the Savior we serve. Is that right? A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said in John 13, that you what? Love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Somehow we get the thing twisted in our heads by thinking that if we go out and love people out on the street, that they will know that we are Christ's disciples because we're loving them. That's not the context of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying if you love each other in the church body, if you are disciples of Christ and you love each other, the outside world will take notice and they will know that you are my disciples. And then Jesus prayed in John 17 that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. How can you do that if you're not part of a church body? You simply cannot do what Jesus is teaching or praying for there as a flockless sheep. There are two things you cannot do alone, said Paul Turnier. One is to be married, the other is to be a Christian. And because you cannot do it alone, churchless Christians are presenting a spiritually stunted picture of Christ and his bride to the watching world. In his book, Church, Why Bother? Philip Yancey wrote these words. He said, my identity in Christ is more important than my identity as an American or as a Coloradan, or as a white male, or as a Protestant. Church is the place where I celebrate that new identity and work it out in the midst of people who have many differences but share one thing in common. We are charged to live out a kind of alternative society before the eyes of a watching world, a world that is increasingly moving toward tribalism and division. Isn't that right? The church, as Eugene Peterson has observed, is composed of equal parts mystery and mess. Think about that theologically. We're mystery and mess, aren't we? Henri Nouwen once defined a community. I love this. He says, community is a place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And that applies equally to the group that gathers each thanksgiving in your home, as well as the group that congregates each Sunday morning in your church. Hebrews chapter 10, you know these verses. Verses 24 to 25. We read them to you out of the New Living Translation. Think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love and good deeds. I like that. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. The Christian who does not involve himself in a church community is incomplete. Author Bill Hall points out the disciple will miss the dynamics of interpersonal relationships, not only with those he or she likes, but with those he or she may dislike. The church helps us accept others. It's reality therapy. The church would make a great reality show, wouldn't it? And it gives us the big picture and the importance of global mission, doesn't it? Friends, love operates in the context of people. It does not operate in isolation. It doesn't. Because biblically, love is an action it's not just an emotion. It's not just a philosophical idea. It has to have a context in which to express itself. And the context into which Peter places us as fervently loving one another is the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 4 verses 20 and 21 says if someone says I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, John says, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. In one man's words, in our indifferent, preoccupied world of isolation and anonymity, it's a comfort to know that we're linked together. Someone cares about us. Someone is interested in us. Someone notices us. That's another benefit of being involved, by the way. On the flip side, however, as local churches grow and numbers increase, it is sometimes easy for a person to get lost in the shuffle, isn't it? They fall through the cracks. They feel no sense of identity. They take no responsibility. They drift Dangerously near perilous extremes, without anyone even even knowing it. I remember reading about a well-known Christian leader that um, had to speak at a seminary. It drove this point home hard. That I read about. He had spoken on the subject of the need for self-esteem among men in the ministry. But strangely, many people have the mistaken idea that those preparing for ministry seldom struggle with inferiority. So this uh, Christian leader was addressing this group in the seminary. One young man was brave enough to admit that he found himself paralyzed with fear even though he sincerely desired to help others as he served God. Well, the speaker spoke openly of this common predicament that gnaws at one's soul. And sitting in the audience that same day, he writes, was another student with the same kind of problems. However, he didn't write me a letter. He never identified himself in any way, but three weeks after I left, he hanged himself in the basement of his apartment. One of the four men with whom he lived called long distance to inform me of this tragedy, and he stated, deeply shaken that the students' roommates were so unaware of his problems that he was there five days before he was missed. Difficult, though, it may be to believe there are Christian people who are that out of touch with people and that uninvolved in the town or city where you live, where I live, here, this author writes, and also in the church where you worship, and he gives us this counsel. He says, they need you. And what's more, you need them. And unless something is done to establish and maintain meaningful involvement, tragedies will continue to occur. Never forget, he says, isolation is a potent killer. Involvement is not simply an enjoyable luxury for those who have time on their hands. It is essential for Your survival. You know, one of the things Jesus said would be characteristic of the end drawing near, as Peter refers to here, is that, quote, Matthew 24 12. Jesus said, Because lawlessness is increased, what's the result? Most people's love will grow cold. It's happening all around us, it's happening all around us in the world but it should not be happening in the church. Just the opposite, Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Serious times... My friends, call for serious faith, and when you're serious about your faith, you're going to think clearly with a bold perspective. You're going to live prayerfully with a balanced perspective. You're going to love each other fervently because it's a burning priority in your life. And fourthly, we're going to embrace each other cheerfully by maintaining a welcoming presence. That's verse 9. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitality, that was an absolute necessity in the days of the early church. I don't know if you know that, but churches owned no buildings. Wow. Imagine no buildings to take care of. They met mostly in homes, buildings were used for other reasons. If people were unwilling to open their homes to others, meetings of the church body would have been difficult, if not impossible. Church meetings often, very often, revolved around meals, thereby presenting even further demands upon individuals in an impoverished society. Teachers traveled from house church to house church, making the need for hospitality an absolute necessity, and we have letters in the New Testament that address that. Inns were scarce or of such a nature that people preferred staying with friends or brothers and sisters in Christ. In the book of Acts, we are introduced to a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who among other notable qualities, if you do a study on their lives, you find out that they possessed a heart, a huge heart of hospitality. The most common phrase that accompanies their names in scripture, you know what it is? The church that is in their house. The church that is in their house. Romans 16. 1 Corinthians 16. It's a great, it's a great thing. That was said about them. Because they repeatedly opened their homes as a place of ministry. And you know, they did it without complaint. And that's what Peter's talking about here, isn't it? Be hospitable to one another without complaint. How? We need Let let me personalize it. How I need to adopt this attitude. Don't we all? I mean, some people have the gift of hospitality. It's like people at their house all the time. When I go to Scotland to visit my son, the pastor of the church that we attend there, they don't have a building either. Everything that happens outside of Sunday morning service when they gather together at the town hall, everything pretty much emanates out of the pastor's home. He's got a huge home, and there's people coming and going all the time. The doors are always open, always unlocked. There's people staying in bedrooms upstairs. You never know what you're going to walk into when you walk in the door of that guy's house. And I'm thinking, this guy's a saint, man. I don't know how I, I, don't know how I could live that way. But it's so cool to live that way. Meals are always going on. There's always people dropping in. There's always ministry happening You see, the thing we need to realize is that this verse was written not simply because it was a necessity in the early church, but because it has spiritual value in its own right. I know hospitality can be an exasperating chore, and it is an exasperating chore. It was then, and it is now. With overtaxed schedules, underfed wallets, poorly managed souls, our mindset is rarely on accommodating one another. But Peter emphasizes it here, and he said that if you're serious about your faith, you will not fall short on cheerfully showing hospitality, no matter how serious. The times are. And I have a feeling that as things, you know, wind out of control in this world, that this quality is going to be more and more called upon. Because we're, we're not just going to be entertaining each other for dinner. It's going to be a refuge where we all seek safety, security, camaraderie, and love. Romans 12, 13 says that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. The message says it like this, be inventive in hospitality. That's pretty cool, inventive. You never know what impact it may have or to whom you might be ministering. You know the verse in Hebrews 13, right? 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So do you think clearly and keep a bold spiritual perspective? Are you living your life prayerfully with a balanced spiritual profile of seriousness and joy? Do you have a burning priority to love others around you fervently? Or do you embrace others cheerfully through your attitude of hospitality? If so, then you're well on the road. You're taking your faith seriously in the midst of serious times. There are a couple more things that complete the picture if we're really serious about our faith and that's what we're going to look at next time. Two more things at the end of this text. But for now, we'll close it out. Listen, Pope Paul VI once said these words, quote, somebody should tell us right at the start of our lives, that we're dying. Then we might live life to the limit every minute of every day. Good words. Through Peter's pen, God has given us a similar message. Serious times call for a serious faith. The question is, are we listening? Because the end of all things is coming. Peter says, therefore, live. Think clearly. Act prayerfully. Love each other fervently. Embrace each other cheerfully. And you know why? Because, as Corey Ten Boom once said, the measure of our life, after all, is not in its duration, it's in its donation.